The Faculty Futures Lab is a project of the SDSU Initiative for Inclusive Leadership, a faculty-led effort to grow capacity to lead within institutions of higher education in complex and uncertain times. Funded by the President's Budget Advisory Committee. Learn more at fa.sdsu.edu. All guests speak from their own expertise and experience, not for San Diego State University. Welcome to the Faculty Futures Lab podcast. My name is Joanna Brooks. I'm the Associate Vice President for Faculty Advancement and Student Success at San Diego State University. Now, this summer, a team of SDSU faculty and administrators joined up at the asking of the provost and president to develop supports for teaching in fall 2020. We knew we were facing another doozy of a hybrid semester. And so, you know, how should we go about building a body of information and inspiration to support our colleagues as we work with our students? One of the things we did was we launched the Faculty Forward Awards at SDSU to honor colleagues who teach who had demonstrated exceptional agility during the spring 2020 pivot. More than 60 faculty sent in nominations or applications, and we identified about a dozen exemplary winners. Today, we bring together four of them for a conversation. Carrie Ann Quick, Assistant Professor of Art and Design, Nancy LaCorey, a lecturer in civil engineering, Scott Schaefer, a lecturer in mechanical engineering, and Rodrigo Perez, who's professor in the Department of Physics. What happens when two engineers, a jewelry-making art professor, and a physicist talk about their experience of the great spring 2020 COVID classroom pivot? Pure inspiration, that's what. Listen in as our colleagues talk with SDSU's Center for Teaching and Learning Director, Sarah Elkind, who is a professor of history, about turning challenges into opportunities, serving up understanding and flexibility, and supporting academic honesty and integrity. Now, I'll note, this was part of a recorded Zoom conversation, and there's a couple of staticky patches because, well, we know that happens, but I promise the inspo is worth the listen. There's nothing like hearing committed faculty colleagues share the art and craft of teaching and its enduring power in these times. Carrie Ann, you're up first. What was your particular challenge? So I teach in the School of Art and Design and I teach studio classes and that hands-on experience was immediately vaporized. Um, So I was, you know, it's midway through the semester. I'm trying to maintain or retain some kind of robust experience for the students where they're able to complete some making um, with really limited resources. Uh, So yeah, that, that was basically the problem that I was trying to solve. I was just trying to, first of all, provide a sort of useful distraction from the stress of what was happening uh, when lockdown first started. But my biggest challenge is that I was teaching five classes and they were all different. One was like Carrie Ann's where they had, um, it, it was an in-person lab where I would take the students out to the field to visit construction sites. So that was not gonna happen anymore. And it was the middle of the semester and I had 65% of the grade was these labs that were in person. And the other class that I was teaching had a lab, but this was a software-based lab. So I had to get the software for the students. And then the other classes had these really high stake exams and, and I teach engineering. So that was the biggest challenge here. Uh, 
you still evaluate their thinking process. So I was, to be honest with you, Sarah, I was kind of inspired by your email. You sent an email mid-March sometime and it was a five-day routine or five-day, I don't know if you remember this at all, yeah. but like five days or five ways to process the problem we're having back. And I thought, what is the most important content that I haven't covered yet? And what are some of the most important skills that I still want my students to uh, practice? And what content or assignments are the ones that are going to uh, get me the most questions? So that, that was my approach. So thank you for that. I think that the focusing on where you know you're going to get the most questions is a really thoughtful way to decide what to cover. And um, that's such a good idea. Um, continuing around, Scott, what, um, what was your, what was the problem you were trying to solve? Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm in the mechanical engineering department and I'm uh, in charge of the senior design capstone program. So that runs uh, fall, spring, semester, two semester uh, course. We have all the students form into teams and then they work on sponsored projects, projects that are typically sponsored by industry, nonprofit organizations and uh, faculty. So for the 2019-2020 academic year, I had 190 students formed into 43 teams. Oh, my God. And uh, when COVID-19 started to arrive on the scene, you know, there was clearly a concern that, you know, it would impact our course because the fall semester spent on identifying the uh, project fully and then uh, working through the design. And then when we get into spring, it's about fabrication, assembly, and testing that. So right around the March timeframe, the students are typically – uh, like we just heard from the others, they're in a lab setting, they have hands-on work, they have to build things, and it's really important that they get the opportunity to do that and then show what they've designed actually works. So that was the challenge. How did we, how would we support that if the campus were to uh, close and then, of course, around March 11th, that's ex exactly what we started to see happening. Rodrigo. I'm in the physics department, and uh, in the spring, I teach this um, lower division class that uh, has over, usually it has around 500 students. Oh, wow. Uh, this time it only, fortunately, it was only 360 <laughs> students. Um, and, you know, if, before uh, COVID, like, we're always struggling with two things. One is... Uh, engagement with the students in such a large class and you know it is like lecture hall and the other issue that we're also dealing with is uh, academic integrity again also because such a large class um, and just when COVID happened those became even more important I think the main one I was worried about was engagement because I mm -hmm. think if you have that everything else is a little easier because the students sort of feel connected to you and to the class, and then it's easier to approach their poems. Uh, and then the other thing that was new with COVID was also to allow flexibility for the students because they were all facing, there's so many of them that they're all facing completely different things. Uh, 
but also at the same time to allow flexibility to maintain a sense of fairness throughout such a large class. So Rodrigo, while, you, while you're unmuted, do you want to talk about what you came up with for solutions and, and maybe how you think it went? Yeah. So, well, the first thing was that because I had more than 300 students, like a regular Zoom meeting, they have a limit of 300 students. So, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. So I actually, through the uh, Fit Center, they got me a special license from Zoom to, have, to host webinars instead of meetings. And that doesn't have a larger limit. Um, because I, I thought that it was important to, in such a large class, to, and basically that was my only way to maintain engagement was to maintain live sessions. Uh, and I was a little worried that I, I, they were all just going to go sort of like be like, well, it's recorded, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to watch it later. Uh, but I had always over 300 students show up. And, oh, wow. And yeah. And then being a physics class, there's a lot of handwritten stuff that you have to do. So I had to get like a small tablet to do use this whiteboard thing that Zoom has. And it takes some learning to use it. Um, and eventually I found like even better software instead of just the whiteboard. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised that I was able to maintain students uh, coming to class. And the thing that I was surprised was that actually uh, I was getting more questions. I always try to stop, like even before COVID, like I always stop every now and then. I ask them, what questions do you have instead of, do you have any questions? Oh. Uh, this is something that I saw somewhere on some Twitter thread or something. And because um, when you ask that, you're already telling them, yeah, I know that you have questions. So now please tell me. And instead of like, do you have any questions? Because if you don't, then we'll just move on. Right. Because uh, I just want to I have material to cover. And and the, the good thing about the webinar is that actually allows them to just they have like a Q&A feature and. Uh, everybody sees the questions and the students can sort of vote on the question and if they like it more or they can just even respond themselves and they can also ask anonymously. Uh, and the anonymous questions, actually, I, I was getting even more questions than before. So I think that was definitely a success. Um, and then uh, when it came to academic integrity, uh, what I did is... Uh, we before we had four midterms and a final, two midterms had already passed by the time we had to move online. And I just uh, I just went with the conventional wisdom of you know change these like few high stakes assessments into several small stakes assessments. So that's just what I did. I rewrote the syllabus and was like, you know, things changed a lot, so we need to change the syllabus. And I just gave them a new syllabus that says now it's gonna be weekly test. Uh, basically covering what we saw the previous week, every Friday. And, um, but it's still like, you know, now that it's online, are they gonna just find the questions online? And uh, so what I, one of the things I did to mitigate that was uh, I have, uh, we have this bank, uh, this questions bank, and then the, you can set up both Blackboard, which is what I was using at the time, and now Canvas, uh, which is what we're gonna be using moving forward. You can set it up to, pick random questions 
so that everybody gets different. Uh, and then like the order of the answers are also randomized. So then at least they're finding, they're getting different exams. So there's no point for them to be communicating with each other. And the other thing is like, you can set time limits and no backtracking. So it's not like they look all the questions, find them online and then just write them. So it's just like, you cannot only um, move forward. Uh, but then, as I was saying, uh, you need to have some flexibility, uh, right? So, because you know that there'll be students who be like, oh, my internet fair, or and without being there, it's hard to know, uh, to assess, you know, what to do. So I was like, everybody can take the test twice. And uh -huh. then, you know, like the, the exam gets released on Friday. You have, once you start, you have half an hour to finish it. That also sort of limits how much they can find online. Um, but then you can take it a second time if if you want. Yeah, I mean, if, if you got it right, then that's fine. And if you want to take it a second time because either you you didn't get it right the first time or because your internet failed, something happened, then you can take it a second time. And I think that allowed to have this sort of flexibility that I was also talking about earlier. So, uh, And it's a balance uh, because then... Um, I, I started to get like a lot of students from email, uh, from emails from students. Uh, and usually when a student misses an assignment or anything, they're like, oh, it's just, I had all these things going on. And the tone just changed to, I forgot. <laughs> and I forgot to do this assignment. Can I do it now? After the, you know, whether it's a test or a homework or whatever. And, and I, I was trying to be understanding of, you know, everything's crazy for them right now, one for me. Uh, but also, you, at the same time, it's like, well, if I start letting some students do things now, you know, there's going to be students who are struggling with maybe way more complicated situations, and they won't say anything because right. you already gave some guidelines, and you say there's no makeups. So I was like, I'm, uh, you know, you just sometimes you do have to put your foot down and be like, sorry, no, like we need to maintain uh, a level of fairness for everybody. Uh, so those were some of the things that I did. So do you do you feel like um, and if anybody else has questions for each other, please chime in. But do you feel like that worked? Like that balance of flexibility and and yeah. here are the rules. Yeah, I think because whenever I was replying to students, I was also explaining them why the answer was no. I wasn't just like no. I said no makeups. Sorry. I was like, I was like, well, there's a policy that is in place already, and. In such a large class, it's just it, it is important to to maintain this level of fairness for everybody, and the vast majority of the students understand, and they're like, "Yeah, I understand." I just you know wanted to see if there was something I could do. And the other thing is like I also even before COVID, you can drop one of the, your lowest assignment, your homework assignment. So I will start with it like you know you know you're gonna drop your lowest homework. In this case, it's gonna be the, the one to drop. Instead of spending time on this that, you know, you don't have to worry about it, just spend time on getting the next one because, right. you know, now there's more assignments. Now that we changed from a few big tests to several small ones, now there's more things to keep track of. So just focus on getting the next one. And I think that worked. Uh, the vast majority of students were fine with that. What I was worried was still academic honesty um, or integrity. So I, you know, when I was getting the grades for everybody at the end, I just look at sort of the grade distribution what was before and after, and mm -hmm. it was still pretty similar. Uh, so that gave me some confidence. But that was one of my main concerns. Uh, 
uh, and I also try to see, like, you know, is there this one student who never did any homework, who never showed up to class, and who somehow got all the tests 100%, which, I mean, it's not an evidence of cheating, but it's, it definitely raises some eyebrows. And I really couldn't find anything like oh, good. that. So, so I think that also gave me some confidence at the end of the semester. We're like, okay, I think it wasn't terrible, <laughs> completely terrible. It's 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 good to hear that that kind of the strategies that everybody has been recommending the lower stakes test and the randomized pools and all of that 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 actually seems to have worked mm-hmm. um, because that's a question that I've been hearing a lot. It's an anxiety that a lot of people have. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and if if I had more time, I would you know create even more questions, like not rely on. Uh, test banks completely, but just create even more questions so that the pool is even bigger and it's sort of harder to find. But also we were all just staying afloat at the time. So yeah. I was like, this is something for next semester. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Any questions for Rodrigo? Okay. Well, we can come back if you think of them. Yeah. Scott. I appreciate those uh, comments, Rodrigo. I, I was also teaching thermodynamics, which is a traditional academic course, and but that that was that's a different set of challenges. And uh, I didn't go to the low stakes testing, but um, we because uh, we we didn't have those banks of questions like that. I think would have made that possible. And I think we only had we only detected one possible case of academic dishonesty. So I was, so I was pretty proud of the students actually. At the end of the day. And it was funny because my struggling students actually turned out to do better. And my better students kind of declined a bit. And I don't know if that's because they just relaxed, thought they were doing great, and the struggling students knew that they had to do more work to stay into it. But I also noticed that they were the ones that did show up to the live online lectures more so than maybe others and did more work and asked more questions. So it was a mix, but definitely... Appreciate those ideas, Rodrigo, and, and the low stakes and and the flexibility you're given. In my senior design course, because we use uh, project management as a framework, when we saw this coming, I asked all the project teams to register a risk in their risk management plan. It's a tool that we use. Oh. And the risk basically said, what would we do if the campus were to be closed and or what would the impacts be? And and that uh, causes students then to think through what, what steps they would do to mitigate that risk. So we got a few weeks on that. It wasn't a whole lot of time, but those project teams that actually moved up their uh, build time, you know, got things going faster than they would normally have, got parts in, those sorts of things actually were in really good shape once the campus got to a closure mode. So risk management was key. The first part, though, was uh, really about uh, communication. And you can imagine we have a number of stakeholders, not just the students, but of course the project sponsors involved. And so communications was very, very important. And, and early on, obviously, we didn't have a lot of information, but even communicating that, you know, this is what we know, and this is really developing quickly. At the end, in the course survey, there was a lot of comments about how uh, they appreciated the communication that was coming out. Of course, had to be careful in the communication not as to mislead people either, but it's important to have that open communication. They know that they're going to get it quickly 
and also to hear back from both stakeholders and students as to what their concerns are. And, and it really is something that in, in, I think deeply impacted students. In many cases, we wouldn't really know the level of impacts because they don't uh, necessarily share it. But uh, as that would come out, that would really work to accommodate whatever their issues were. But it's important that we maintain a level of uh, being positive and actually seeking the opportunity in what was going on. In my view, the opportunity found itself in the fact that students, even though they had already been working virtually together as teams, as well as in the lab and in the course lectures, was now to have to switch to a complete virtual mode as a team. And industry works that way you know, and has worked that way, not perhaps completely virtual as they are today, but certainly a good mix of both in-person work and virtual work and so I have a lot of industry experience and my switch to using Zoom for the lectures was fairly simple because I am used to that. But and students, I think, were wasn't too bad because they were already doing some virtual work. But the opportunity I saw now was how to manage our teams really in a virtual environment. That's a that's a thing that uh, or a set of skills and knowledge that they would be able to use in industry. And then we had some students that were international students and they ended up moving home. For example, a number of students moved to Spain. They were quite worried about that. The only worry I had was would they have good uh, connectivity? And as it turned out, they had excellent connectivity. In fact, maybe even better than some domestic students. But the unique opportunity that is part of that is if you're now on a team, you have an international team member, you have to consider time zones and those sorts of things. And in fact, today, a lot of businesses are global. So bringing in that global aspect, I also saw as an opportunity. Now the key part of our program is for student teams to do presentations. That hones their skills on being able to do presentations and all of our presentations to date had, were done in person. And now we had to switch that to a virtual mode, which is a bit of a different skill than doing it in uh, person. And I also saw that as an opportunity because likewise in industry, you're gonna do virtual presentations often and even today, of course, uh, is the norm. So that I think worked well uh, too, to give them that opportunity. And I communicated that these things were opportunities and they should view it as such. Now, in some cases, students were not able to get back to the lab to complete you know, fabrication. So we looked for an opportunity there to use engineering simulation, you know, engineering applications online that would model the system and a number of our sponsors were very for that, thought there was a value in that, and we found ways for students to be able to access tools such as ANSYS and those sorts of things virtually. That was one of the challenges, by the way, students not having personal computers capable of running such software. And I know going here into the next academic year, IT has worked on enabling access to on-campus computers just for that. So those things, you know, extensive communication, the switch to the virtual mode, seeking the opportunity, communicating often uh, with uh, with uh, all stakeholders, and you think about that on the stakeholder side. And that also, by the way, includes coordinating of supplies. In some cases, students did do work individually at home, took, got some supplies delivered to their home, was able to continue building prototypes. Maybe it wasn't the final you know, machine version, maybe of something 3D printed. And I had students who worked together. Some of them had 3D printers at home. They would make parts and then they would arrange to drop parts off with each other. And they 
continue to work. Some students did some testing here and there. Of course, we were always careful about all aspects of safety in that regard and uh, watched out for that. But I think the students appreciate that we were concerned about their safety and I always put out the message, talk about communication that made it clear that we would not do something that would jeopardize our safety and for them not to worry about impact to grade. You know, if it was, if you aren't able to, you know, finish the bill like you had planned, that's because of the circumstance, it's not gonna be an impact to your grade. Mm -hmm. So like Rodrigo commented, you know, and Sarah, you mentioned the high stakes testing. Students very nervous about that naturally, but when you layer on moving to virtual and all the other complexities in their life, trying to figure out where they're gonna take virtual classes from, where they're gonna be living, are they gonna be stuck with an apartment? Do they have to move home, you know, to another country? All sorts of things are also building in the background in addition to the normal stress. So I, I think that uh, was also reflected at the end of the at the end of the semester. So those are the main things that, that we did uh, for our senior design program. The other big one though, is really at the College of Engineering level because every year we celebrate the uh, results of the projects through design day in Montezuma Hall. This is where the entire College of Engineering, all departments get together, show their, show their work and people come and go and there's uh, hundreds and hundreds of people that do that. So we, College of Engineering, uh, Dean Oleski and uh, faculty made decision to move to virtual design day and there was an opportunity in that too, which we found to be unique and not available in the past through the physical des, uh, design day that would occur in that it made it much easier for people to participate, especially people who would be working all day, maybe not able to drive down to the campus or maybe friends or relatives who are elsewhere in the country and would not be coming to San Diego for design day. We're now able to partake in design day via using the Zoom, it took quite a bit of work to figure out how to do that, but uh, students did that and that was very unique. And I think uh, it was a powerful lesson that now we have a different opportunity and perhaps even more attendees at the end of the day in total participate in the virtual design day for the College of Engineering in May. So that was the other big part of it. And obviously for students, with the initial prospect of not having a design day and not having a commencement, you know, those are major events in their life, right? Yeah. And, and enabling maybe not the, the perfect replacement, but enabling something that would uh, be uh, memorable and have the ability for them to get much out of what they had planned for, for the regular design day in the virtual mode was also key. I, I think that the, the not having the, the in-person celebrations are unfortunate, but I think, I think that the virtual design day has some, I, I'm really excited by what you just said about being able to involve more people and have more people see it. That's super, super cool. Um, yeah. And the, one of the other things that I think is so exciting about what you're talking about is, is the way in which the, the senior project then modeled what happens in the real world when something goes wrong right? Like, what are the risks? How do you communicate them? What do you do? So maybe they didn't get the build done, but in terms of skills and experience. You know, you're, uh, you're right on, Sarah. That's actually part of the journey, part of the experience yeah. Yeah. Of, uh, of going through senior design is to 
when things go wrong, this is you, the same thing's going to happen in industry and in projects that you're going to do in the future, whether it's in industry or academia or wherever you might be. Yeah, and I'm also, just, yeah. I'm just thinking about this batch of students job application letters like do you know about risk management well sure in fact (laughs) because (laughs) yeah yeah no doubt and we we do a post survey every year and certainly this year the risk management was rated high very (laughs) valuable (laughs) yeah i'm I'm not surprised so nancy let's let's hope your connection is working a little better now so i appreciate what both scott and rodrigo said uh, going back to Rodrigo's, um, what questions do you have? I, I have a similar approach, except the mind is ask me two questions. So they have to ask me two questions and two questions end up being 10 questions sometimes. So, um, and then going back to Scott, the word I heard the most was communication. And I think uh, the two things that I was um, basing my approach on was communication and transparency. So uh, again, my biggest challenge, well, the biggest challenges I had were the labs, uh, the in-person labs, especially, and the high stake exams. So, and and not just high stake exams. And I think Rodrigo said this too, uh, academic integrity. And then Scott mentioned that they only had one case where it was doubtful that they had done something. So for me, what helped a lot is that I had gotten to know the students. uh, Combined with all my classes, I had about 200 students, but the biggest lecture I had was 67 students, I think. Um, But the other ones were a little smaller than this one. So one thing that I learned quickly was to actually uh, involve my students in decision, not decision making so much, but getting their feedback, because at the end of the day, they're the users. And so I wanted to make sure that I, whatever it is that I was doing was working for them. The other thing that I learned is that I have to provide more than just one platform for them to succeed, because they all uh, experience this differently. Their learning is different. And what Scott said that his good students were perhaps doing a little worse than his average students were doing, were, were shining. And I noticed the same, but I think my, in, in my case, I think some of the students were, were really relying on that in-person teaching and just being in class and asking questions and paying attention to the professor. And these are the people that would sit up front usually, right? And then you had the rest of the students who are maybe a little bit more shy in this online environment, they thrived. They're just, they could ask questions. They were more vocal. There's just something about that, which goes to telling you that there's always opportunity. Like you, and it's all about attitude, right? Like, and, and positive attitude, I'll tell you, it's contagious. People like will eat that. And so um, what I noticed is that if I kept, if I kept working hard and, and providing this environment where they felt safe and they felt like somebody cared about them, then instead of, instead of searching for excuses, they would actually search for solutions. And I saw that more than more than 10 times and 20 times, right? So um, I, what, I, um, what I did is because like Scott, like he said, he's teaching thermodynamics. My classes are there. Uh, and like Rodrigo too, they're all these problems that you have to solve and you can't really present them in a PowerPoint version that you have to actually solve them. Like I do a lot of writing on the blackboard or on the whiteboard, I guess. And so what I did is, um, I think it was what, March 
was it March 12th or 13th? I can't remember. Something like that, right mid-March when this happened. And I I remember some of my students had this fancy laptop looking things that I always thought, well, how do you even take notes with those things, right? And I learned later that they're called Surface Pros, which I didn't know. And so I um, I emailed them, a, I emailed a couple of them and I said, I know you had some fancy laptop, what's the name? And then I set up a Zoom session with all the students that I remembered had these laptops and then they taught me how to use it. I, I went and purchased one and, and we had, we set a Zoom session and I had my students teach me. They, they taught me how to take, like do better notes and how to capture them and how to record them, how to print them. I knew it was incredible. And they were so engaged because they saw that I wanted to do something good for them and they wanted to help me because at the end of the day, it would help them. And really that was the biggest change that I made is that I purchased the Surface Pro and I started recording my lectures and my, I started doing problem tutorials basically. And I would post them and they were a hit because all of a sudden you have these tutorials, you can go back to them, you can pause them. And so um, one thing that I learned from, from jo- attending those CTL coffee hours is that when you're given the opportunity, don't just do it just to get it done, but like do a good job with it because here we are fall, we're going to be online again. And so I recorded like very professional tutorials. I didn't say, oh, a happy Easter or, oh yeah, St. Patty's. Like I didn't say anything that would, that I couldn't reuse in the future. So I just made them very neutral, very bland so that I can reuse them in the future. And I'm so glad I did that because now I have this material that I can use in the fall, except that I'm teaching different classes in the fall, but that's a different story. (laughs) So, um, you know, one thing that I did do different from Rodrigo is that I didn't change anything. I kept everything the same. I uh, took a, a minute to think about it and I thought, okay, I have the best excuse right now to change everything and to go and revisit my syllabus. Or I can, knowing my students, most of them were seniors graduating. So I, I know that they were, I know that they were disappointed that they didn't get to like have their year their this year that they've been working for what 20 some years right since since they were born and so i thought you know what i'm going to keep everything the same i had guest speakers lined up i contacted all my guest speakers and i said can we please record zoom sessions and i can post them for my students i had um projects that they were supposed to do where they were supposed to visit sites uh, again i set up opportunities for them to still do them even though it was virtual um, we did the presentations. I did breakout rooms in Zoom, which I had never done before. And one thing that I did is over spring break, I took the time to um, set all the dates for the remainder of the semester for all the assignments, all the quizzes, all the exams, all the presentations, so that everything was there and, and they knew exactly when things were due. Um, the other thing that I did was I changed, instead of the, the homework being like due based on when I was going to finish the lecture because the lectures were being recorded. I made all the homeworks due like Sunday night at 11.59 p.m. And then once they did the first one, now they knew it kind of triggered something in their brain where they said, okay, our homeworks are always due at 11.59 p.m. So then they started getting used to that. And same thing with the quizzes. Like quizzes are every Thursday at 12 p.m., for example. Um, Office hours, I changed my office hours to instead of having like all of my classes, you know, because office hours, you're in your office, anybody can stop by. I made specific office hours per class. So I divided 
the students into different classes. And then the other thing that I'm really proud of, and this comes from my experience in the industry, is that I created what's called an RFI log, which is request for information. So it's kind of like a frequently asked questions type of thing. And I use Google Sheets and I would have students enter their questions in this Google Sheet and everybody could see it. And I would respond in there. So basically I created these columns and the first column was the number of the frequently asked question. The second column was their name. The third column was the type of question they had. Was it homework five? Was it project number two? Was it exam number three? Which, what did it pertain to? And then their question, my response, and then another column where students could respond. So it was like, it created this sense of community. I had, by the end of the semester, I had over hundreds of, hundreds of questions that I had responded throughout. And again, I can use that for this semester because I can say, hey, go look at these questions. Maybe I already answered them before you ask me the same question, right? And then it allows you to create more tutorials for the students because all of a sudden you have this time now that you can focus on your teaching versus on responding to questions. Um, another thing that I did, uh, and I did this for all of my classes actually, another thing that I did that worked really well was um, my exams. I did a lot of mock exams my, it says my internet is unstable, so you might not hear me now, but it, uh, I said, oh, I, what I did is I had the students, I had an answer sheet on Blackboard, which I had to learn how to create these exams on Blackboard. And then I had them um, submit a PDF of their calculations. And really, my reasoning behind that is that I wanted to see their steps. So the big thing about the exams is that with uh, true, false, multiple choice, you can't really gauge their learning. Um, and so I thought I, I really want them to submit calculations. So I had them submit PDFs of their calculations. Um, and that way I can follow so that they could fix it by the final exam, for example. Uh, this is another layer to uh, integrity. So like if you're just doing multiple choice, it's more work for the professor, obviously, because you have to grade each one of them. But at the end of the day, they're going to school to be, for me anyway, they're going to school to be engineers. They're going to design bridges and, and the next spaceships, right? You want to make sure that they have a good understanding of, of the material. And so I think this worked great, Sarah um, and Rodrigo and Scott and Carrie Ann, for me anyway. So what I did is I had them do the answer sheet like Rodrigo did. And then I would give them another 15 minutes at the end of the exam to submit their PDF calculations. Uh, another thing that I did, because again, to keep the integrity was everything on the answer sheet had to match the calculations. So the answers could be different. And if I didn't believe that they matched, then I had the opportunity to uh, test them orally. So I put that in the syllabus, I added that where I could have an oral exam if I didn't feel that the calculations made sense. So it, I think it really helped. And like Scott said, I, I only had one case where someone submitted some, someone else's calculations. So again, I, you know, I think I'm so like, you know, I'm overwhelmed with joy to be on this call today because I'm hearing so many great things. I'm so inspired by all of you. And I can't wait to hear what Carrie Ann has to say, but I, I Another thing that really worked for my students uh, is um, the 
the constant communication going back to what Scott said and uh, the emails. I sent so many Blackboard announcements. I was the, I mean, they hated me, I'm sure. <laughs> but I would send, it was, it was just constant communication. I would even send personal emails like to every single person, like, how are you doing? How's the online learning? What can I do to help you? How's this assignment going? And some of them would respond and some wouldn't. But again, their feedback was really important to me. Um, I remember when this whole thing started, because I love quotes, I remember telling them that if you're going to do big things, you can't let small things get in the way. And just to kind of inspire them. And um, I, again, it's, it's just that sense of community, like showing your students that you really care makes a huge difference. And we really care. So um, I, I would say that I, I personally couldn't have done it without my students. I, I attribute all of this to them. Uh, they pushed me and they inspired me. So, Cool. <laughs> it's, I love the, the combination, the, the sort of overlapping the automatic, the sort of online test with the handwritten test with the, with the oral interviews is a way to get people to learn what, there's, what they need to learn. I think that's super, super cool. Carrie Ann, what did you do? Because your challenges were really different. Well, um, so I, I was actually in Germany at an international conference when lockdown happened. So I, I wasn't here when the studios, when we were asked to leave, um, which was another layer of um, kind of well, it, it was an issue trying to prepare my students. I knew that it was happening. I could tell by, you know, the emails that were coming through that it was an inevitability. And so I was, you know, staying up really, really late to call my TAs to get everybody mentally prepared um, to get their, you know, to gather supplies and, and get and um, borrow tools um, to go home and, and do what we could from home. So... The classes um, that I was that I taught in the spring, I teach a design and crafts class, which is um, one project in every every area of the craft program. So one in clay, one in metal, and one in wood. Very studio and material intensive. And then I was teaching advanced jewelry, and um, uh, again, very you know infrastructure reliant. Like we need the ventilation, we need torches, we've got you know, big uh, floor equipment that obviously I can't, I would never expect a student to have access to outside of, of the studio. Same with ceramics, you know, I mean, nobody's got a kiln at home. So, um, so really um, I had to essentially, like Rodrigo, I had to rewrite my curriculum completely and rethink what we could do um, from home. And, and with that in mind, I also had to, to, uh, Again, echoing what's what's already been said, stay really flexible because I had international students who were going home to Mexico, or you know, students that were going home to, to Pacific Northwest, or to Texas, or to North Carolina, and they were everybody was in a different time zone all of a sudden, and you know, um, you just can't assume anything about where people will be and what that situation might look like. I had a student that, um, whose dad was a, was a sort of hobbyist woodworker. So she had a whole wood shop in her garage. And then I had students who were sharing a, a bedroom with two of their cousins and, 
you know, had nowhere to, to work or make or no space, like literally, you know, just a little square of carpet um, to kind of try to get work done. So in my field, um, there is, a, you know, a contemporary, the contemporary part of, of uh, making jewelry and metalwork is really about challenging the assumptions about material value and, and function. And, um, you know, of course, you're probably all familiar with Duchamp's urinal um, that, that sort of brought the found object into contemporary art making. And it happened in my field as well, where jewelers uh, started to use plastics and, you know, found materials and, and everyday materials to, um, you know, reflect our, our, our contemporary experience and, and our, our material experience. So, um, it just so happens that I was in Germany at this international conference to do a, a project with a collaborator that I work with uh, from the University of Texas, El Paso. And we, we're always talking about, we, we do um, curatorial collaborations. So we put together exhibitions and we were doing an exhibition there in Germany. And um, when we, you know, when we started to hear all this trickle coming in, we've for a long time wanted to collaborate because our schools are sort of similar. They're both situated on the border. We both have students that come from across the border. The demographic is sim is similar. It's also a military, both military towns. So we're really, um, you know, we were like, wow, this is so, you know, there's so we have so much in common already. Our students have so much in common already. It would be so cool to you know, do a project together someday. And so when this started to happen, we, and we knew that we would be forced online, we were like, oh, opportunity, this is the moment. Like we couldn't ever really kind of justify, you know, the kind of obstacles that would be in our way to collaborate normally. But in this case, we're all gonna be on the internet anyway. So, um, so we decided to, uh, both rewrite our curriculums. Um, instead of teaching, I was going to teach a, a cold forging project where you take a flat sheet of metal and you, you just cold forge it into a vessel. Clearly not able to do that at home. Um, we were in the middle of a casting project in my advanced class. So, you know, they had carved their waxes and they were ready to to go through the entire process. Clearly that's not going to happen. Um, so uh, we designed a project called Artifacts of Isolation and the students were asked to rethink, reevaluate what material, making material means, like what can be useful in, in the making of objects. And they had to um, use material from uh, each room in their house. So in from uh, material from the kitchen, material from the bedroom, material from the bathroom, and then they could pick one other one, anything they wanted. So it could be their backyard or it could be the living room or whatever. And they had to gather material from that room and make a piece of, of art using that material. And, um, and, you know, it really, again, you know, so we, we were really drawing on this, um, on this history in our field of everyday material being incorporated into jewelry to challenge, um, you know, what, what jewelry is supposed to be made out of. Um, and, you know, using their skills to cold connect and to think of innovative uh, ways of connecting material together. Um, 
And, you know, it was really interesting. So the way that we collaborated uh, or the way that we had our students collaborate actually is we put them into groups, working groups, and they used, um, they used the G Suite. Basically, they were using Google Slide and they would all collaborate on a slide presentation and they would um, they, they up, they put in their, like each, each student had a certain number of slides and they would put in their design sketches and then they would all have to comment on the design sketches. So they sort of worked together to kind of, um, refine their ideas and it just went through a couple of iterations and then they produced the piece and then we had small group critiques and, um, the the final outcome was having all of our classes. So um, I had my my craft class and my jewelry class, and her two classes. We collaborated on an online exhibition, and because we thought, well, this is interesting. You know, I mean, part of my work with uh, my my collaborator Jess Tolbert at at UTEP is that we do exhibitions, and we we. Um, you know, we come up with a theme and then we choose, we select work based on that theme or we commission work based on that theme. So we thought that we would give them that sort of same experience. Like we're all kind of in this similar situation together. We're all going to kind of make um, these pieces, these artifacts of isolation from home, and we're going to put them all out there for, you know, as, as, a, as a sort of timely um snapshot of what's happening in these two border cities in these two border universities and so we uh, they collaborated on an instagram feed and they just loved it they were just you know it was amazing to just see them whether they were in each other's groups or not uh just kind of really you know connect as much as is possible on social media and i think you know they were they are they like that platform anyway so that was partially why we chose it and it also meant that they could share what they were doing with um, with their friends that weren't in their classes. So, you know, we had people from all over the country, including our colleagues at other universities, like, you know, kind of there was just this network of 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 kind of energy happening where we were all kind of doing the same thing. And then the other sort of interesting opportunity that came up. So when lockdown happened, um, Metal prices, except for gold, crashed. I don't know if anybody noticed, but I did. And it's often cost prohibitive for jewelry students to make in some of the finer metals because, yeah, they just can't afford it, right? So we usually work in brass or copper or nickel, um, but silver prices crashed. And so I had my advanced students who already have a little bit of, you know, it's it's relatively easy to set up a little home studio for jewelry work. Like you can use a creme brulee torch that you buy at, you know, any kind of cooking store to do some small soldering or, or fusing. Um, so they, I sent them a, a shopping list, uh, including um, a certain uh, footage of fine silver, which was super cheap, like crazy cheap. And they, uh, I taught them how to, via Zoom, using my phone as a dot cam, um, I taught them how to uh, fuse fine silver, and they wove a uh, Etruscan chain, which is like a totally ancient um, and really interesting process. So, um, so that was the other sort of opportunity. But yeah, I think um, 
you know, the, the main things that, that came out of it for me was this ability to collaborate um, and this ability to connect across distance and time zone and, um, you know, really not thinking of it as, oh, my semester's ruined, but instead positioning it to them like this is a really cool opportunity to do something that we would not normally get to do. And they were so, you know, they were really into it. So, and I also think, um, I mean, I got a lot of comments and even in my, uh, my student evaluations that maintaining the structure was sort of like keeping them in a routine sort of helped them through the hard part, like the, the shock of, you know, this total, um, this total shift in, in, engaging with the world. So yeah. Yeah. Really cool. So my, my spouse and I decided that what we really needed to do during COVID was build ourselves a clay oven. So the first thing we did was extract clay from garden soil, which (laughs) amazing three, three weeks of material science in the backyard. Amazing. It was a little out of control. So um, do you guys have, we just have a couple of minutes left. Do any of you have questions for each other? Uh, I'd like to say I appreciate all the ideas. I, I think I'm looking forward, Sarah. I mean, if it's just the four of us and we got this much content, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to all the ideas that will come forward. And then I was thinking here, boy, the, we really do have a great set of faculty with different vectors on experience and thoughts and approaches and what we can learn a lot. And I, one of the challenges, by the way, in engineering is creativity and design and how we're going to do that online virtually. I know this fall we're going to go to a hybrid mode, so there's still going to be time face-to-face, yeah. but we're still going to have to do a lot online. So, and by the way, I always thought engineering should collaborate more with the arts department. Amen. Let's do it. Let's be the ones to do it. I'm all for it. Yeah. Make bridges out of fine silver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I, I occasionally have engineering students in, in my jewelry classes, and I had a student in my, interme- in my advanced class this last spring, and, you know, when we were talking about annealing or talking about some of the things that we, some of the processes that we do in metal um, that, are, that are functional, but we don't get into the science, you know, he was like all, it was like, boop. Oh, I just learned about this. Oh, yeah. and then he would explain to the class, and he was really making these cool connections between the two. You know, kind of applying it in a yeah in this other way. And yeah, I agree. I mean, there's so much that we do that is relevant to each other. And um, yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so you're going to report in six months on what the collaboration looked like. Yep. <laughs> How about you, Rodrigo? Uh, I would just like to say I'm thrilled to hear all of these, uh, you know, seeing how challenges were turned into opportunities for everybody. It's, it's very encouraging. Um, uh, Nancy, just about the submitting the PDFs, I don't know if you took one of the flexible uh, Canvas uh, course design courses, but one of the models was about this tool, use Gradescope where students can, like, it's specifically for students submitting their handwritten 
oh. assignments and to it's sort of like turn it in, but instead for essays for handwritten stuff. And I I'm actually gonna use it in this fall. I mean it's a much smaller class class. I have 40 students only, which will allow me to actually review handwritten work. But I think that's actually gonna be very, very helpful. Um is this through Canvas? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well it's an external tool that okay. is you can link to Canvas and uh, basically, they, you, uh, there's there's a way to link Canvas and Gradescope, and then the students can, uh, you can, and there's different types of uh, ways that you can set up the assignment. And you can, I mean, I think the origin of this tool was sort of to like grade exams, especially in large classes. But they've been, you know, adding more stuff. And now that COVID happened, they're getting even even more stuff. Uh, but yeah, definitely, uh, I can send you the, the link of where all yeah, the videos. Yeah, thank you. Are. That they send, uh, that they put on the um, yeah. Because I'm yeah. Now that I'm teaching this smaller upper division class, uh, I do want to see their handwritten work. And uh, I was like, uh, you know, what type of devices do they have at home to do their PDF, like and stuff like that. And it has ways to like turn your handwritten notes into a PDF with their smartphone and stuff like that. So yeah. Would would that work for? Drawings and stuff, Carrie. Do you think, or oh, no. I know. I think, yeah. I mean, anything that you handwrite and then you just turn into a PDF. But then, I think what is useful for the professor is that everything gets organized together. Like, I'm gonna review question number one of everybody, and then it just shows you question number one for everybody, one after the other, and you have rubrics. And uh, so, so can, yeah. So what I learned, um, just like you guys, very fast, I didn't realize that I could learn technology this fast. Like, that's the first <laughs> thing. And uh, I became really good at Blackboard, like, yeah. somehow. And I think I started writing these exams and learned all these features. And um, one of the features that I learned is that you can grade by question. And that really saved me a lot of time, students, and I could compare them to my answer, and that really helped me with the feedback that I was giving back. So I didn't realize that. I mean, I've been using Blackboard, but come on, like, there's some homework. But I, yeah, Blackboard and I became really good friends, like, <laughs> the last three, four months. Yeah. So now, now I have to learn Canvas. So that's another added layer, but I have decided not to transfer my courses until spring. Um, and this is the choice that I made because just like you guys, there's only so many changes I can deal with at once. Yeah. And like right now, I just want to give them that, again, instead of spending my time trying to figure out how to use Canvas, which I'm sure is easy and user-friendly, I want to spend some time making them feel good about this online learning and I want to be, the, I think we're going to end up being more as facilitators than teachers at this point, because um, I'm, I, I have two little kids and they were also home with me and I was homeschooling them. Oh my God. <laughs> when this whole thing started and they're not going back. They will have uh, <laughs> five hours of, of uh, teaching every day that I, I will be doing for them. And so what I realized that what works best for me is to have office hours at 7.30 p.m., and actually, for a lot of my students who decided to take internships, that works better for them, too. Yeah. 
And again, just being transparent and just telling them, look, this is what it is right now, but I'm here for you. And these are my hours. And um, so yeah, going back to that, I will keep Blackboard and then I will slowly learn how to use Canvas. But if this great scope works, then I might I might just pick it up. Uh, so with that, I actually, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I think there's, there's gonna be a way to also make it work with Blackboard, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can actually port over your Blackboard course in the Canvas. I, I took nice. the Summer Institute, and I decided to go ahead, bite the bullet, make the switch. I was feeling like you. I was just coming up to speed on Blackboard. But I tell you, I actually like Canvas a lot. You like it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think maybe I was as far into Blackboard as now I've gotten into Canvas because that's Summer Institute. So I'm wondering now if Blackboard had all those features I just didn't know about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. We're going to be facilitators. And YouTube stars, because basically I'm pre-recording all of my demonstrations. And <laughs> I'm realizing that like this is, I mean, it's it's like an extreme version of the flipped classroom. I can't demonstrate anything in person to preserve as much lab time, as much studio time for them as possible. Um, so yeah, it's between facilitation and YouTube stardom. Yeah. <laughs> well i want to i want to thank you so much uh all of you uh carrie i have such a big appreciation for any art related teachers because i'm an engineer and um we do artsy things but our look ours don't look as as beautiful <laughs> well they do but it take it takes a long time and you cannot build them in a lab usually but um so i definitely appreciate that and this comes from actually see my, my my kids art teacher work with them during the pandemic and the things that they created like you said as she was rising in her her youtube stardom so i really appreciate all that you do it's not easy to convey um i mean for us it's numbers so a lot of times it's 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 really just simple like that but for you there's more layers to it i think there's texture and there's color and there's just a lot of stuff so i appreciate everything you said and I want to link to the Instagram page. I want to see oh, what yeah. you guys came up with. Yeah. Can you put that in the chat? Then, can yeah, you? sure can. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, I mean, I am like not a numbers person, so I really appreciate um, what you're able to do. And, and you know, I think, I think that it's all a communication style, right? Like some people communicate through numbers and some people communicate through these nonverbal kind of, I mean, that's what art is, right? It's essentially like a nonverbal communication. It's, it's symbol, it's metaphor. Um, so, you know, it's, I mean, I think for students, it's all about finding the communication style that, that suits them. So it's all important for sure. Cool. Okay. So Carrie-Anne's going to put the Instagram yep. In the chat, I love that we had two engineers, an artist, and a physicist because it feels like it's all of a piece. Yeah. Different angles on the same piece. Hey, thank you all for your time today. I, this was so exciting. I learned, uh, I've been asking for 20 years, do you have any questions? And I never get any questions. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm going to change that script. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I noticed that. And you, there's this uncomfortable silence always. Yeah. yeah. But I think it, it, I really noticed a difference once I started doing that. It's fantastic. Yeah.